Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Van Morrison's Astral Weeks is a classic album that wasn't an instant hit. But respect for the album's unique blend of jazz, rock, blues, and folk has only grown over the years. Today, a classic album dissection to mark the 50th anniversary of its release. Plus, we hear from recent guests about their Desert Island jukebox picks, tracks they can't live without. Man, I love well, his freedom, first of all. He got away with so much. I don't know how he's able to do it. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to hear from Jason Isbell, Ted Leo, Don Was, and more of our recent guests about their Desert Island picks, tracks they just can't live without. But first... This month marks the 50th anniversary of Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. We strolled through fields all wet with rain And back along the lane again There in the sunshine In the sweet summertime The way that Greg, from time to time here on Sound Opinions, we like to dig deep into a classic album and kind of dissect it, talk about why this is an important record, our thoughts on it, why we love it, why it's an enduring masterpiece. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. It uh, was a classic record in its time, although it didn't sell a whole lot of copies and it never really produced a major hit single. It took 33 years to go gold. Absolutely, but it was a major landmark work in Morrison's career in a lot of ways, even though he's made a ton of great music since it was released in 1968. I don't think he's ever scaled the heights that he did emotionally Mm -hmm. uh, with Astral Weeks. There's something very special about this album, and we're going to try to get to the heart of it. Yes, at the time in his career, Morrison was 22 going on 23 years old. He was only 23 when the album was completed, so he's a very young man, but he'd already had a fairly long career in in music. He was in an Irish garage rock band called Them, most famous for writing the hit Gloria, which was appropriated by a Chicago garage rock band, of all things, uh, Shadows of Night, which had a top 10 hit with it in the mid-60s. But Morrison was listening to a lot of R&B and blues, of course, uh, as an influence. And then he came across Dylan in the mid-60s and realized, the music I'm doing right now really has nothing to do with what's happening out there. I mean, Dylan is making these amazing abstract records that are diving beyond the moon-june love songs that a lot of other people are writing. I want to write music like that. 
So he left them, came to the United States, wanted to record solo music, and was looking for an appropriate producer. He had a great deal of respect for this guy, Burt Burns, who had done a lot of great music with people like Solomon Burke, Wilson Pickett, the Drifters, as a staff producer for Atlantic Records. Mm -hmm. Burns was starting his own label. He apparently got Morrison. He understood what Morrison was trying to do. He wanted to make acoustic-flavored music that was more personal in nature, an Irish response to Bob Dylan, if you will. Or at least Morrison thought that Burt Burns got him. But when he showed up to the studio, he was shocked to see all these musicians there and all these instruments. There was three guitars, and there was a drummer, and mm-hmm. there was multiple bass players. And he's going, wait a minute, I don't want to make pop records. Yeah. You know, I want to make these personal records. Out of that session came Van Morrison's biggest hit, ironically, Brown-Eyed Girl. Van Morrison wasn't even around at the finish of that song. He let the other guys in the studio finish it because he was so disgusted with the kind of music he was making. He had, he had no intention. Not what he wanted to do. He had no intention of making that kind of music. He left that studio session in 1967, moved to Boston, started playing the coffee houses in Boston with a trio, more close to the vision that he was seeking. It was acoustic guitar, it was flute, it was upright bass. This was a strange kind of music. It wasn't really readily accepted then. What was it? Was it rock? Was it jazz? Was it folk? Was it R&B? Was it blues? It was influenced by all of those things, but it really wasn't any one of those things. The biggest problem for Van Morrison in 1968 was finding a producer who could make a record that understood what he wanted to do. And he went through these producers one after the other, and they were all going, well, yeah, we can make pop hits with this guy. Uh, and Van goes, I don't want to make a pop record. I want to make a record that is not a rock record. I want to make a record that doesn't even have a drummer on it. So he was talking to all of these producers. Finally, he came across a guy who did understand what he wanted, and he was Louis Merenstein. Louis Merenstein was a guy who ended up working with people like Charlie Musselwhite, the Spencer Davis Group, Mama Cass Elliott, the Mamas and Papas, John Cale, Gladys Knight. He was a respected producer, but he also was blown away by Van Morrison. When he heard Van Morrison sing those songs in his office, he goes, I know exactly what I want to do with this guy. And he called up his friend Richard Davis, great, great bass player, out of the jazz scene and said, I've got this session I want you to do, and I want you to hire the best players you can find. Well, Richard Davis was coming out of the jazz world. He didn't know who the heck Van Morrison was. He didn't care about rock music. He understood jazz. But he put together the best lineup of jazz musicians that was available for this session. So Richard Davis on bass, he calls up Jay Berliner, who was playing with the Charlie Mingus band to play guitar. And he calls up a guy named Connie Kay, who was Mm -hmm. only in the modern jazz quartet to play drums. So Van said he didn't really want a drummer, but he got Connie Kay, who was just this master drummer, uh, very subtle, uses a lot of brushes. He was the perfect call for this session. I think Berliner is an important name, too, because with Mingus, he had played on Black Saint and The Sinner Lady. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an album that's very similar to the way that Astral Weeks is set up in terms of its ambition and its musical eclecticism. I I really think that that is in jazz what Astral Weeks is in rock.
Yeah, that's a great point, Jim. And I think uh, the, the title track of the album really sets it up. It introduces the record. It takes you to a place that is unlike any in music at this point. This is 1968, remember. Nobody was really making records like Van Morrison wanted to make at this point. And uh, the title song, which is the first song that he played for Louis Merenstein when he went to his office and said, this is what I want. And what Merenstein heard was a soul singer, this Irish soul singer, with an acoustic guitar, fronting this band of jazz musicians, making this episodic, epic music that was nonlinear in a lot of ways. There weren't, really weren't verses and choruses and bridges in the traditional sense of a pop song. It was more of an ebb and flow. These songs were expansive. They would go on for six, seven, eight, nine minutes mm-hmm. at a time. No producer in his right mind at that time was interested in commercial music would have made a record like this. But Louis Merenstein understood what Van Morrison was after, and I think he got it, set the, set the blueprint for the record when he made Astral Weeks. The first thing you hear about this record is that Richard Davis's bass is basically the lead instrument on it. He is setting the tone for the entire record. I think the poetry of the language in the very opening of this track really is just absolutely transcendent, and it takes you to a place where he's talking about living in between dreams and and talking about a place that is not of this world. In fact, he talks about being a stranger in this world and going someplace else, this idea of transcendence. So he sets up the themes for the record very well. And what I'm going to play for you is the end of the track. There's no way we're going to be able to play these epic tracks in their entirety here. But this track builds and builds and builds to this crescendo of feeling and then slowly recedes, and literally it's like the trembling of the leaves in a summer breeze at the end, with the, with the fiddles shivering and the bass underneath it all, and Morrison's voice finally descending into a whisper. He says, I want to be reborn. He wants to go to another place, and he's taking us to that place as this album begins. So here it is, the title track from Astral Weeks on Sound Opinions. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the bad ducks of your dream Where a mobile steel rims crack And the ditch in the back road stop Could you find me? Would you? I kiss in my eyes To be born again To be born again To be born again To be born again In another world, darling In another world In another time Got a home on high Ain't nothing but a stranger in this world I'm nothing but a stranger in this world I got a home on high In another land So far away So far away 
That is the title track of Astral Weeks by Van Morrison from his classic 1968 album. After a short break, we'll continue our album dissection in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week, we're marking the 50th anniversary of Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. And Greg, when my rock critic hero, Lester Bangs, contributed to a book called Stranded, the the critics' all-time desert island favorites, he wrote about this record. When you listen to a track like we just heard there, Ballerina, you think, man, the chemistry in the studio between this band of musicians and Van Morrison must have been extraordinary. But that really wasn't the reality, was it? There are different stories, Greg. Some of the biographers have said, and uh, actually John Cale, who was recording in the studio next door, said that everything he heard from the Van Morrison Astral Week sessions, which only lasted two days, two days in Mm -hmm. New York City, produced the entire album, was that everyone despised Morrison, who (laughs) can be a nasty individual. You famously have seen him take a punch at a band member on stage. Mm -hmm. He's not an easy interview, uh, is cantankerous, is opinionated, does not suffer fools. That the other musicians hated working with him. He laid down acoustic guitar and vocals, and the rest of the band fleshed it out. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it matters. It does have this wonderful sense of a group playing together and improvising. And a key part of that is that Morrison improvises with his vocals in the same way that the great jazz flautists and bassists and and Berliner on guitar, the same way that they're improvising. Repetition being a key thing here. Again and again throughout this album, you hear Van seize on a word and drive it home. He uses his voice as a drum or as a rhythm instrument, like the bass. You know, you said that Richard Davis is the lead instrument here as the bassist. That's kind of what Van's doing with his vocal, too. Mm-hmm. So never, never, never wonder why at all. No, 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 no. So never, never wonder why at all. So never, never, never wonder why it's gotta be. It has to be. Way across the country where the hillside mountain glides. The dynamo of your smile caressed the barefoot virgin child to wander. The other big thing to think about when you listen to Astral Weeks, well, there's a couple. I mean, one is it's a song cycle. It really is best appreciated as an album. We can't play the whole thing for you here, but it's an old school beginning, middle to end journey. And then there's the spiritual aspect. 
Again, Van Morrison not being a very cooperative person. Biographies differ. Some people report that he was a Jehovah's Witness. In fact, he wasn't raised in any religious tradition, but his mother did experiment with the Jehovah's Witness religion. He went to some uh, revival meetings. Throughout his life, Van continued to search for something, for some sort of spiritual meaning. I have to think that in the end, he found his religion in music itself. Mm -hmm. But he was fascinated with this idea of how does one transcend the everyday? How do you find heaven on earth? In large part, what Astral Weeks is about is you find it in love, mm -hmm. in true love. Now, he has a lot of definitions of love, and that also includes pain. You know, <laughs> yeah. in all great religions, you got to suffer to get the reward. I shall drive my chariot down your streets and cry. So this is an album both of extraordinary joy and deep, deep, dark pain. Absolutely, Jim. I think the, the song I think you're going to play next illustrates that very well. And I think it's important, too, to note the setting for this album. It's a, it's a metaphorical place, but most of these songs are set in his native Belfast in Ireland. And Cypress Avenue, the main drag in Belfast, plays a, an incredible role in these songs. And it's more not a geographical location for him. It's more a state of mind where time and space are really fluid. So he's going back to these childhood memories and these adolescent passions and bringing it up to date with his adult anxieties. But you can see the song sort of morphing in space and time as they go along from line to line and verse to verse. It's constantly changing. The perspective is changing. But what it is, is he's talking again as about this spiritual journey. And when he goes to Cypress Avenue, he's talking about the side of town that he wasn't really allowed on. That was the street of dreams in Belfast. That's where the rich people lived. That's where the pretty girls were. And when you went to Cypress Avenue, you went there as a place of longing. That's where you wanted to be, but you're not there. You're not going to get it. It's just out of reach. And I think the track that you're going to play illustrates that notion of a dream being just out of reach. Well, yeah, I do want to play Cypress Avenue in large part because it's the song that Van Morrison closed his sets with in live performance for years and years and years. It became a trademark. I think it's also indicative of the album. People read endlessly into the lyrics and ponder the meaning. At various points, Van has said simply, Astral Weeks, I quote, are little poetic stories I made up on the spot. Mm -hmm. we, we can accept that or we can think, no, something as complex as this song Cypress Avenue has got to be more to it. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. It's a complicated song. Uh, as you said, you know, you can read that it was this place in Belfast that, that he couldn't get to where the muckety-mucks live, or he is an older man in this song watching a 14-year-old girl stroll down the street. Yeah. Is this a Lolita kind of situation where he's experiencing a lust he shouldn't have? Is it him as an older man looking back on the past that he did have and the joys that he had? Is it the past he wish he had? Yeah. I mean, you don't really know. Before we play this song, I want to put it in context of the great rock critic Lester Bangs. You know, Lester was known for championing heavy metal and punk rock and really being the voice of, of those two musics. And as his biographer, one of the things I found fascinating was that when he contributed to a wonderful book, 
came out in the early 80s called Stranded, where some of the great pioneering rock critics were asked to write about the one album they loved most. He chose Astral Weeks. Lester, like Van, had a mom who was a Jehovah's Witness and struggled with the concept of where you find transcendence in life. And he found the answer in two extreme poles, White Light, White Heat by the Velvet Underground, which came out in 68, and this album, which came out in 68. What Lester wrote was that Astral Weeks deals not in facts but in truths. In so far as it can be pinned down, it is a record about people stunned by life, completely overwhelmed, stalled in their skins, their ages, and their selves, paralyzed by the enormity of what, in one moment of vision, they can comprehend. Well, I'm caught one more time Up on Cypress Avenue Call one more time Up on Cypress Avenue And I'm conquered in a car seat Nothing that I can do I may go crazy Before that mansion on the hill I may go crazy Before that mansion on the hill But my heart keeps beating faster Yeah, my feet checking still And how the little girl drops something One way back home from school And the little girl drops something On the way back home from school That is Cypress Avenue by the great Van Morrison from his 1968 album, Astral Weeks. We're doing a classic album dissection of this disc. Greg, where does the record go from here? Jim, that's a great question. I think people have been trying to answer that question ever since. (laughs) I mean, Van never has explicitly stated what this album is about, and people draw their own feelings out of it. But what's clear to me is I think this album is, above all, an album about feeling very deeply about something, about life. And I think it's those extremes in feeling that make life worth living and also produce that unbearable pain that you hear in Cypress Avenue. And later on in a song like Madam George where he's basically talking about this drag queen. 
with an incredible amount of empathy and insight. It's this nine-minute song, and he's talking about the, the boys coming around to the drag queen's house to party and drink and dance. And then when the, when the music ends and the booze runs out, they all leave, and there's the drag queen lonely again by yep. herself. And he's overwhelmed by this sight. Like, th- this person will never find true happiness in this world. There will always be these momentary bursts of happiness, and then it, it all falls apart, and you're left with yourself, and you're just completely lonely and, and devastated. It's very understandable why this record didn't become a huge commercial hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, people didn't understand what it was about. They didn't understand the music. But as you listen to the music now, it's incredibly powerful and incredibly well played. It ends on a note of just total devastation. There's a song called Slim Slow Slider, which ends the record. And Davis's bass playing, which we've extolled throughout the last few minutes here, talking about how he's the lead voice on this on this record as much as Van Morrison's own voice is, suddenly becomes incredibly agitated. And you, and you hear everything falling apart, and then boom, it's like fade to black. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that Sopranos episode. It just like, it just ends. <laughs> Every time I see you I just don't know what to do Or does it, though? People would say concept album, Van. What was your idea of making the concept album? And he always said, no, song cycle, Mm -hmm. which means that it starts over again. You know, it's life, death, rebirth, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that ends it there, Greg. I mean, that's just where the vinyl ended back in the vinyl day. But if you have your CD player on repeat or your iPod shuffle, right? It's a big issue, Jim. Uh, You know, he talks about being reborn again at the start of the album. He talks about death at the very end of it. And you're absolutely right. What is exactly does that mean? Is it a spiritual death, a physical death? Do we have to experience a little death in ourselves in order to live life to its fullest? There's a, there's a lot of possible meanings here. But what it is, again, it goes back to that deep, deep feeling. And the only way to live life is to live it in these extremes. And I think it's no wonder that he really never went back to this place again because it, it is sort of a torturous journey. You can hear it in Cypress Avenue. You can hear it in Madame George. Mm-hmm. Do we really want to experience that level of pain and sadness? No, we don't traditionally, but when you're a 23-year-old man with your whole life spread in front of you, you want to test those limits. And that's exactly what Van Morrison was doing in Astral Weeks, and that's why it's an amazing record. Little Jim is gone Away out on the back street Out of the window To the falling rain Right on time As always, we want to hear from you. What are your memories of Astral Weeks? Is it a classic or is it overrated? Call and leave a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800 or find us on Twitter and Facebook. 
Up next, some of our recent guests give their desert island picks, music they just can't live without. Everything from unknown Canadian power pop to Prince. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott. And that is a snippet of the theme song for our Desert Island Jukebox. Greg, this is one of our favorite segments of the show. It is where we talk about a track we cannot live without that we would choose to be stuck with on the desert mm-hmm. island. And on occasion, we invite our guests to add a track themselves. This week, we want to highlight some of their desert island jukebox picks. These are our choices from guests, and we haven't aired them before. Why don't you introduce our first guest pick? Gladly, Jim. Uh, Our first uh, guest for the Desert Island uh, sequence is P.J. Morton, a pianist from New Orleans. It'd be the way we were when we first began Like the first time that I ever saw you smile I want that feeling again It's be the way we were and I love the fact that PJ came into our studio, took one look at that beautiful grand piano we have mm-hmm. in the Jim and K Maybe studio and said, I'm at home, man. <laughs> you know, I'm ready to go. So PJ was regaling us with stories as well as playing on that beautiful keyboard. And, uh, you know, I don't think his choice was necessarily that surprising, but you can tell he was way into it. What would I take today? Um, yeah, because we, we, you know, we, yeah. those of us who, who live music like us, right, you know, we have a different yeah. answer every hour. Oh, for sure. Yeah, but yeah. right now. I feel like right now it'd be some Prince, maybe. Mm. Um, maybe take me with you. It just yeah. popped in my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it's just, I don't know. So that's what I'm going with because that was good right there. What do, you, what do you love about Prince? Man, I love, well, his freedom, first of all. He got away with so much. I don't know <laughs> how he's able to do it, man, but he was just so special. And the confidence in mm-hmm. being special let him get away with a lot of things. And I love that um, because I'm sort of a loner, you know, when it comes to creating. And uh, he was someone I could look to and be like, all right, see, he's a loner, too. Mm-hmm. He's in there playing everything and, like, yeah. you know. And, and the way he was able to mix soul and pop, you know, mm-hmm. so effortlessly, um, you know, he was very soulful, but but he made things that were very popular and made people sing along. He wrote these choruses yeah. that you could sing, everybody could sing along with. Yeah.
P.J. Morton's Desert Island pick, Prince's Take Me With You. Greg, we also had a great chat with Brian Koppelman. We are both fans of the show. He was showrunner for Billions. He's a writer. He's a producer. He's a former music executive. We we could have talked for hours. Uh, he is also a Lou Reed fan, as are the both of us. I will quibble a little bit with his choice, only in that it's my, like, 16th favorite Lou Reed <laughs> album. But let's have Brian tell the story. I would have to say Lou Reed, New York. Ah. All right. There's a downtown fairy singing out proud Mary as she cruises Christopher Street. And some southern queen is acting loud and mean where the docks and the badlands meet. This Halloween is something to be sure of. Especially to be here without you. I hate that album. <laughs> Why? I love Lou Reed because um, I thought it was just pandering. Uh, you know, it was like he, to who? But pandering to who? Pander, it was easy, Lou. His entire career is New York. Everything he ever recorded is New York, and then he's singing the Last Great American Whale. But when's the last time you listened to Halloween Parade? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great that, song. Yeah, all right, all right. Yeah, that's my Achilles heel in this argument. That is a brilliant song. But there ain't no Harry and no Virgin Mary. You won't hear those voices again. And Johnny Rio and Rotten Rita, you never see those faces again. This Halloween is something to be sure. And I look to me, Dirty Boulevard and Romeo and Juliet. I'm a lifelong Lou Reed fanatic. We ended season three with "We're Gonna Have a Real Good Time Together," yeah. which is an uh, mm-hmm. not oft-cited Velvet Underground song. I'm a huge Velvet Underground fan, but I have found myself going back to New York, hmm. especially in these times right now. I feel like it is such a relevant album today. When you think about the world he was writing about and how all of us thought we were past that stuff, right. all of us thought the world had moved in a progressive direction. When in fact, that album about Reagan's America could really be like, right, Romeo and Juliet? That couldn't be about what's going on right now. Yeah. You know, and. Busload so, of so, faith to get by? Yeah. You can't depend on intelligence. You can't depend on God. You can only depend on one thing. You need a busload of faith to get by. Watch you, baby. Busload of faith to get by. Yeah, the one I always go back to is Blue Mask. Sure. That's just it. Yeah, but, but I understand. He's in, at that point in his career, those three, four albums there. Uh, he'd been written off, he'd been up, he'd been down, he'd been forgotten, he's back, and uh, and there is something magical about that You know, that he went period. from Fernando Saunders to Mike Rathke, and that right. changed the sound. Fernando Saunders had this much more of a, a groove because of how he played the bass, and Rathke was much more straight-ahead rock and roll. But for me, Greg, do you like the record, or do you not like it? I love it. it. Yeah, oh, okay. it's one of my favorites. Well, I think that, I think if you went back to that now, in, with, uh, with the, all the time in between, you would find that Lou was actually singing about something. That is Lou Reed from his New York album. Great pick by Brian Koppelman. Next up, The Regrets. Uh, really thrilled to get these guys in the studio, Jim. Uh, Lydia Knight, what a singer, what a songwriter. You're talking to me like a child. Hey, I got news, I'm not a little girl. And no, I won't give you a little twirl You're talking to me like I'm sad Hey, I got news I'm not doing too bad Even though sometimes I might get real mad And, you know, she's got quite a bit 
of career ahead of her. I mean, she's yeah, still yeah. a teenager. I mean, when were they were 17 when that first record came yeah. out. It's a complete injustice. It did not rule the world. It was my favorite album of 2017. But there's new music coming. I'm very excited. And I have to say the band was really uh, smart in terms of just the depth of knowledge they have about, about music, not only of their era, but of uh, the music that preceded them, in some cases by decades. Here's the lead singer and songwriter Lydia Knight with her Desert Island jukebox pick. Okay, the first thought I had immediately was uh, number one record, Big Star. Oh, wow. That was like my immediate thought. Yeah. Maybe Friday I can get tickets for the dance now take you Ooh. won't you tell your dad get off well, okay explain back. why why that one in particular oh, so it's just this it's just pure pure genius songwriting and just great music like there's just something that never gets old to me about that album, that always feels new and relevant in my head. It's an album I listen to when I'm sad. It's an album I listen to when I'm happy. It's an album I listen to when I'm angry. Literally, like, any mood I'm in, it's the perfect outlet album for me. Well, Alex Chilton, uh, he's somewhere great right now, I hope, looking down on this. (laughs) He's probably got a big smile on his face because there weren't many people when that record came out that were like, this is the greatest thing ever, but that record has sort of taken on a life of its own. Lydia Knight of The Regrets, waxing rhapsodic about Big Star's immortal number one record. Doesn't get much better than that, Craig. Uh, But Jason Isbell is a songwriter's songwriter today. Uh, No two ways about it. Some of the most smart, passionate, moving music being written today is coming from his pen. So when Jason says somebody is a great songwriter, I think we all need to listen. If we were vampires and death was a joke We'd go out on the sidewalk in the snow And laugh at all the lovers in their plans I wouldn't feel the need to hold your hand You know, I'll I'll pick one that uh, might be a bit of a surprise, but there's a song called I Forget Where We Were by a songwriter named Ben Howard. Oh, hey, I wasn't listening, I was Watching Syria blinded by the sunshine strip yeah. You were in the kitchen, boy My runner's mouth wounded with the wounder's will That particular song, I may have listened to that more than any other song over the last year. Um, wow. And it came out a few years ago, but um, it's just really, really beautiful. It kind of reminds me of uh, Justin Vernon, and it kind of reminds me of Jeff Buckley, and it, and it's one of those songs that just picks up right in the middle 
of something, you know, the, the, the first line where he, he says, oh, hey, I wasn't listening, you know, mm. so it just starts off in, the, in just a little slice of life, and it's, it's a really beautiful song, so that, that one lately would be what, the what's one. What's his story? Where's he from? I don't know a whole lot about him. Um, I, I know his albums are good. He's a good guitar player, like an acoustic guitar player, um, sort of maybe, uh, uh, no offense to um, Ed Sheeran, but uh, you know, it's <laughs> okay. Maybe, we, can we, can, we can offend Ed Sheeran. Maybe more of a thinking man's uh, version of Ed Sheeran. Hmm. Uh, you know, because it is kind of that. There's there's a lot of acoustic guitar going on there. But but I think lyrically he's he's really strong, really good, and I like his voice a lot. Hey, I was listening. I was stung by all of us that blind, How'd you come across it? That is a good question. I don't know. I think, I can't remember if I brought it home or if my wife did, but uh, at some point, uh, one of us heard it and brought it to the other one, and then we've listened to it over and over and over since. She probably found it. That's usually how it goes. She stays current. She's way more current than I am. That is Ben Howard. I forgot where we were. A Desert Island pick from Jason Isbell. Nice choice there from Jason. I mean, the thinking man's Ed Sheeran. Come on, it sounded awful, right? That that didn't sound like it was going to go down well. <laughs> no, but it did. Uh, Greg, one of our favorite guests in, in recent years was the incredible producer Don Was. I have to say, uh, Jim, that uh, talking to Don uh, was a real treat. I, I know we were both looking forward to it. We've known him uh, since the days of Was Not Was in the 80s. And... Uh, his knowledge of music is just breathtaking. And the artist he talked about, we have a mutual affinity for this particular artist. And I was, you know, I keep going back to his words about this particular record because they really resonated with me. Uh, and you can just feel uh, his uh, intense feeling for this music. Here's Don Was. I, I would have to go with uh, Speak No Evil, Wayne Shorter. Uh, I, mm. I need that. I need my fix of that. It still works. <laughs> the record you listened to in the, uh, in the 60s as a kid. Yeah. It's still getting still you through. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's one of the great albums of all time. When I was in college, I was, uh, I was going to the University of Michigan in 1970. It was 19 and really miserable. I dropped out, and the best gig I could get was uh, in a cover band at a bowling alley in Ypsilanti, Michigan. It was really, <laughs> it was depressing, man, and, and I felt like I was really losing my, my way. I, I lost sight of my dreams. I lost sight of who I was and what the mission was, and I'd go back to uh, my apartment, and I'd put on side two of a record called Speak No Evil by Wayne Shorter, and I'd listen to that, and it was just really vibrant, man. But mainly I related to Wayne, and I was listening to his sax solo. And you can check it out. It's a song, Speak No Evil. What I envisioned was that Wayne and I were walking down a street, and he was kind of like pointing out obstacles to me and like kind of helping me swerve out of the way. It's a little like a video game, but <laughs> in that video game was in 1970, so I don't know what I was basing it on.
message of what Wayne was saying in his solo to me uh, was, uh, Don, you, you got to groove in the face of adversity. Hmm. <laughs> and and I, I, it just, it was incredibly helpful to me. And by the time I got to the end of side two, I remembered who I was. I remembered what my dreams were. And I, 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 felt, I felt back on track, no matter how crazy the rest of the day had been. The wild thing is that that album still works for me like that. I mm -hmm. got a long drive back from the Blue Note offices in uh, the Capitol Records, the Capitol Tower in Hollywood. Uh, that's about 45 minutes away, so it's a, a long drive. And if it's been a rough day, man, I can put that album on. And by the time I'm home, I'm feeling good. Mm. <laughs> the great Wayne Shorter with Speak No Evil, a cool pick we would expect nothing less from Don was. Greg, we also had a fantastic time talking to two of the members of Heinz, that hard-hitting Spanish rock band. Carlota Cosial's and Ana Perote, also very knowledgeable music lovers, incredibly passionate. We could have talked once again for hours. Here are their Desert Island jukebox picks. Um, I think I would say Bob Dylan, hmm. even though we don't listen to it that much. Yeah. It like really represents where we started, and hmm. I think we're never gonna get over it. You know, we're never gonna feel like oh yeah. Now, what what yeah, Dylan in particular? I would put uh, Mama, you've been on my mind. Perhaps it's the color of the sun cut flat and covering the crossroads I'm standing at. Or maybe it's the weather or something like that. But mama, you've been on my mind. Okay, why? Because he is the best, and he express <laughs> he express feelings the way that I think nobody can. And we love feeling related with suffer. Yeah, I think it's like the the most universal illness that the human beings have, mm. and that's why like this music and art and and songs like make people more connected because it's like hey dude we 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 doing. We're feeling the same thing. We've the all end. been there. Yeah. yeah. So that is a song. That's a pretty good choice. Anna, what about you? You agree? Yes, I agree. You, you gotta, <laughs> oh, come on. You give us another you one. Gotta have, you you, go, you a, can yeah, top actually, Carlota. Actually, I copy. No, exactly. I have to think. I mean, she said Bob Dylan. I'm the one who stole the... <laughs> you stole Bob Dylan yeah. from yes. her. You stole it. Okay. Yes. What about something garage rock? You're such a ferocious guitarist because you, you really bring it on stage. I love that it's so rough that it can't lie. You know what I mean? It's not mm -hmm. like mm. pop it sometimes can be too polished and yeah. it sounds fake or whatever. Like, I feel like Garage and especially like with the vocals, for example, like nowadays all the, these like Californian bands, they all put like so much distortion in the vocals. And it actually, I think it is because they're saying such sweet things or deep or sad mm. things. But, you know, they're guys and they're like sweating and like they don't want anyone to notice what yeah, they're saying. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. like the Dead Ghost, for example, yeah. they have this song... Um, uh, when it comes to you that we used to cover um, that is so beautiful so sad but you can't tell anything because of the recordings they hide yeah. everything under distortion yeah. 
mm-hmm. think it's such a like in general such an honest and rough yeah it's like real general. it's like like one of the things that you search more uh, well I would say right now nowadays is like for something that is like kind of authentic yeah so um, to me it's kind of the same like I believe these people those are uh, Desert Island picks from Heinz. Carlota Cosials uh, chose Bob Dylan's Mama, You've Been on My Mind. Her partner, Anna Perote, with the dead ghosts when it comes to you. We've got one more, Greg. We do. Uh, Ted Leo, great guest. We've had him on the show multiple times. Cross the road and run back to the town. How many times I've run this way and how it runs me down. But I can't go back. Smart guy, obviously knows his stuff. You know, when you kind of knew that Ted was going to dig deep for this, yeah, 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 it wasn't yeah. going to be a real obvious one, and he lived up to that billing. Here's Ted Leo with a Desert Island pick. I was recently turned on to this Canadian Quebecois singer-songwriter whose heyday was like early '70s, um, named Michel Pagliaro. And uh, it's kind of crazy because before I tell you about the song, just about him really quick, and I'm going to I'm gonna explain him because I'm, I'm going to assume that no one in this room has ever heard of him. I don't think you're blowing our minds. Anybody? It's, so <laughs> no. this is the thing. Like, I, you know, a friend of mine recently came to me and was like, you got to cover this song. <laughs> and um, I was like, what? And it, you know, I did some research on him, and it turns out like the album that it came from is the second biggest selling Canadian album ever. Like wow. you would think that it would have made it below the border at some point. I talked to some other um, some other people who I will name drop because so you know that they're Canadians, and I'm not lying. Uh, <laughs> Carl Newman from the yeah. New Pornographers and uh, um, Paul Myers, the writer. I asked them, you know, like. Do you know this guy? And they're both like, yeah, he's like classic rock radio huge in Canada. Oh. You know, I was just—it's so strange that every American I talk to, um, like, I feel like for the first time in my life, like, I actually got in on the ground floor of something. <laughs> you know? like, it's not like you know, the, did he, did he sing the thirty-fifth person to tell you about Big Star? You know, like, yeah, right, like, right. He did sang he... in French and in English. Well, see, that's um, the thing. We Americans, man. <laughs> we don't want no French. Yeah, but this album is entirely English, oh, and right, um, right. and uh, he's got this song. Uh, I mean, there's there are so many great ones on it. The album's called Rain Showers, and uh, the song I would take with me to the island is um, it's called Loving You Ain't Easy. That was Ted Leo digging deep for some Canadian pop when we taped him live at the Goose Island Tap Room. He was going to play it for us, Greg, Hmm. but he wanted to save his throat for that night's show. That wraps up our guest Desert Island Jukebox segment. I can't wait till we have another one of these. Meanwhile, what is on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a a, a terrific singer-songwriter, Amanda Shires, with an in-depth interview and performance. Download Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcasts. The show was produced by Brendan Banasak, Alex Claiborne, Ayana Contreras, and Andrew Gill.
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Oscar from Bellingham, Washington. Uh, this was your episode with Stephen Hyden. I thought it was a great conversation between dad rock and dad rap. Uh, my comparison for you is that uh, Gangstar is the little feet. Dad rock sphere. Take this for example, young brothers want rap because in the life they're living. Both bands are huge influences, being kind of like the musicians, musicians, a lot of artists have cited. Guru being the Lowell George and DJ Premier being my hero, uh, Billy Payne. You got like Jimmy Page saying that Little Feet was his favorite band in the late 70s and artists like Run the Jewels. Eminem citing Gangstar as a huge influence on their style and their sound. So yeah, I think it's a great conversation. It's fun to talk about. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Hey, this is Glenn Cullen from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I wanted to call regarding the dad rap. Here's an analogy for you. Dead Kennedy's to public enemy, or maybe it should be public enemy to dead Kennedys. Uh, both acts came out of the gate making politically charged albums, and then uh, both acts, the, down, the second part of their career, kind of just was rehashing what they originally did, not bringing a lot of new ideas. And interestingly, both acts had like a, a mid-career redo of one of their earlier tracks. So in the case of the Dead Kennedys, uh, they released the In God We Trust EP, which was a, a kind of a different style of music for them, more hardcore, as well as they re-recorded their track California Uberalis. And in the case of Public Enemy, they released the album Greatest Misses, where they uh, remixed some of their earlier tracks. So there's another similarity there. So, all right, thanks. Keep it up. Bye. Hello, my name is Janet. I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. I'm responding to your dad rock interview. I just want to say, well, at least at the end of it, you got a token thing about the women. Why aren't the women in there? But the whole setup, comparing rock to rap, it's just, frankly, just stupid. And only boys would do that. And the reason that um, women aren't um, included in it is because women don't think that way. The whole concept is asinine, and only boys hung up on rock music would even come up with such a stupid way to look at art. Hi, this is Monica. So mom rap and mom rock, and you said Nicki Minaj and I, Grace Slick, a couple others. Nicki Minaj is Janis Joplin. Feeling good was good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Good enough for me and my Bobby. Guys, I can't believe you missed that. <laughs> okay, have a great day. Bye. Hey guys, this is Kathy from Raleigh, and I just listened to your uh, Buried Treasures episode, and my daughter was in the car with me. We were coming home from her marching in the Christmas parade, and we heard... Jim's pick for the chiptune song, and my daughter went bananas because that is all she listens to obsessively is chiptune music. She loves Game Genie Sokolov, and she said, and by the way, 
we should tell them that that music is called vaporwave. And so just so you know, that is a micro-genre of chiptunes called vaporwave. Who knew you could get that finite, right? So thanks again for digging deep and finding some unusual stuff that impresses my kid. Thanks. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.